Well, good morning. We had uh, planned to take a couple of moments before the message to uh, share uh, and celebrate as a congregation uh, what God did this past week with our students at camp. And uh, so there were several who uh, accepted Christ, who made professions of faith. And uh, so we're going to put that off till next Sunday uh, because, I don't know anything more important than that, because uh, there was one young lady who was a student diagnosed with COVID. And so a lot of those students, including our uh, Jack and some others, are, are quarantined today. So many of them are not here. So the Lord's at work, and uh, so we give him thanks and praise and has a purpose even through this. So I'm looking forward to sharing with you next Sunday morning and having them all here and uh, hearing how God has worked this past week in the life of our students at camp. So uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open with me to uh, John's Gospel, uh, the fourth chapter. We'll begin reading there in a few moments. Three weeks ago... Uh, we launched into a message series entitled Life in the Spirit, and the, the purpose of this series was for, is for us to grow and deepen in our walk with Jesus and to live stronger, uh, faithful Christian lives, which is impossible for us to do apart from the person and the work and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So thus far, I've tried to identify who the Holy Spirit is, and I'm just going to go through these very quick. We, we saw that he is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not an it. He's not a thing, but he's a real person, a third person of the Trinity, one with God the Father, Jesus the Son, possessing all of the same attributes as God the Father. He's the author of truth, and the one that when Jesus prays that you and I would be sanctified in the truth, it's God's Spirit that works to deepen His Word within us to build faith, and it's also the Holy Spirit that works in us to bring forth a spiritual birth. And we saw that from John 3, and it's the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We saw from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that uh, He indwells us and that uh, his dwelling place, our, our, our bodies, these temples, uh, which are designed for worship. And we saw that the main objective of the Holy Spirit, more than anything else, and he has many roles that we'll continue to look at, but more than anything else, the main objective of the Holy Spirit is to give testimony to Jesus. He's always working to bring him glory, to exalt him. And noted that if we as disciples at any time do anything to exalt ourselves or to draw attention to ourselves, to impress others, perhaps uh, with how spiritual we are, especially that uh, because drawing attention to ourselves and wanting recognition is always one of the desires of the flesh. But if we're ever doing that, it should serve as a signal to us that we're not being filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit will always work to make much of Jesus and less of us, for Him to increase and for us to decrease. This morning I want us to examine the subject, as Don mentioned, Spirit-filled worship, and invite you to read with me in your Bible, John chapter 4, starting at verse 19. John chapter 4, verse 19. 
Let me get there. All right. And the woman said to him, speaking to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and she is a Samaritan on Mount Gerizim. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for your written word. Give us ears to hear. We pray that the ministry, the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit would work even now to take what we hear and to mix it and to bring forth faith in us and that, God, we would be worshipers, worshiping you in spirit and truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this text, Jesus provides some definitive words, some insights about worship. And what he says here is no marginal issue. Rather, it's of critical importance for spiritual health that we understand what Jesus says about worship. Because what we believe about worship and how you and I worship gives expression to everything we say we know about God. How we worship gives expression to what we say we know about God. And so I want to consider a few insights about worship before we look to the text. First, you find in the Bible that worship is the constant activity of the church in heaven. Worship in Revelation, the apostle John pulls back heaven's curtain for us to help us to see what is taking place on the other side. And the Bible says that in heaven, worshipers are gathered around the throne worshiping, but not just worshiping, but worshiping day and night. If your child or your grandchild or someone were to ask you, what are we going to be doing when we get to heaven when there's much that we know, much more that we don't know, but I would say it is certain that you could tell them we're going to worship God. It's what our loved ones are doing now if they've gone on before us and they've known Christ, they're worshiping. Worship is the constant activity of heaven for the church. Second, worship is also the chief business of the church on earth. You may say, well, I thought that evangelism was our chief business. I thought that making disciples was 
our chief business, right? After all, Jesus said in the, that was his great, the great commission, go and make disciples. And so I thought that was the heart, that was the chief business. And I would say you're partially right. But as we'll see from this text, evangelism, Jesus engaging with this worship, woman in witness and worship are related. And the reason we engage in witnessing, the reason that we share and give our testimonies to try to share the gospel with other people is because the Father is seeking worshipers. In other words, worship is what drives our evangelism. If you read the entire chapter of this text, Jesus engages this woman. He and the disciples, they've been south in Jerusalem, and they decide to travel to the north, and it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And so after about 25 or 30-mile trip, we don't know how long it took them to do that on foot, but they arrive in Samaria, which Jews usually avoided Samaritans because of some racial prejudices, both Samaritans towards Jews and Jews towards Samaritans. But the Bible says that Jesus is weary, he's tired, his disciples go into the city to get food, and he sits by Jacob's well to rest. And there sitting, resting, Jesus sees this woman to come towards the well, and he engages her in a conversation. She's a little surprised that a Jewish man would be talking to a Samaritan, and especially a Samaritan woman. And she's surprised. And Jesus simply engages her by asking for a favor. He said, would you give me a drink? And through that conversation that they have, he begins to steer it, to turn it to the gospel. He tells her about another kind of water, the water of life. And he tells her, if you drink of this other living water, you will never thirst again. In fact, this water completely satisfies. Of course, you and I understand that through this conversation, he's not talking about physical water, but he's talking about the gospel. He's referring to himself as the Messiah. For in verse 10, if you have your Bible open, it says that Jesus says to her, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes on in verse 14, he tells her, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst because the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. So here in the text, Jesus is certainly functioning as an evangelist. He's sharing the good news, engaging her in a gospel conversation for the purpose, for the purpose of her becoming a worshiper. Jesus says in verse 23, the Father is seeking those who will worship him. Therefore, we witness, and when we witness is because God is being robbed of his glory. He's being robbed of his glory by those who don't know him. When you and I heard the good news, when we heard the gospel, and we surrendered to the Lord Jesus through repentance and faith, we then became worshipers, which is what God created us to be. Most all good catechisms will say much of the same thing in the very beginning. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In the text, Jesus links witnessing personal evangelism with worship. 
And so we witness because God is seeking worshipers. I would also add, don't let anyone fool you into believing that mankind is not a worshiper. If you read any book on anthropology or you study any social science, you'll discover that mankind values worship. People in every culture seek to know God, to worship him, even though they may not know who he is. The fact is they know they should worship their creator. Therefore, you and I witness, hopefully leading them to become worshipers. Now, from the text, I want to share some things that Jesus conveys about worship. Notice in verse 22, he conveys that there is this practice of false worship. The practice of false worship. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. You worship something you don't understand. Meaning that there is worship that is uninformed. Worship that is ignorant or worship that is, could be classified as false worship. Worship characterized by those not knowing the one they are worshiping, resulting in unacceptable worship. If you look at the dialogue between this Samaritan woman and Jesus, the Samaritan woman had been clearly taught some things about worship, right? She says, for our fathers, maybe my dad, her dad, maybe her granddad, her mother, but her fathers, her family, maybe for generations had taught her things about worship. Much of what she was taught was according to traditions and customs, all of which perhaps was very sincere. Maybe even their worship was very spirited. But Jesus says to her, it doesn't really matter where you worship here on Mount Gerizim or back in Jerusalem. The issue of worship is not geography. It's not on this mountain or back there. In fact, he says to her in verse 22, You worship what you don't understand. You worship what you don't know. In other words, she was an example of a worshiper who was sincere, but whose worship was not acceptable to God. It was false worship, which shouldn't surprise us. We find this in the Bible as early as Genesis chapter 4. You remember there were two brothers, Cain and Abel? Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. And these two brothers had received spiritual instruction from their parents. We know that it was their parents because those were the only folks that were there. And so their mother and dad had to teach these two sons of theirs some things about worship and some things about God, which is what parents are supposed to do, Christian parents. We're to be the primary disciplers of our own kids. And so these two brothers received spiritual instruction from their parents. Their parents taught them the importance of worshiping God. And evidently they taught them some things about an offering. Bringing an offering to the Lord. What kind of offering and when to bring the offering. And what kind of attitude or motive they had when they brought their offering to the Lord. And the Bible says that. When these two brothers worshiped and when they brought their offerings to, the, to God, God was pleased with Abel's worship, but it says that God was not pleased with Cain's worship. 
For in Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, it says that God did not respect Cain nor his offering. And so the point is made that Cain's worship and his offering is not acceptable to God. It can be classified as false worship. And throughout the Bible, there are continued warnings issued by God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God issuing warnings to his people about worship. Repeatedly, the prophets denounce God's people and say, on behalf of God, your worship is vain. Your worship wearies me. In the book of Malachi, God says to the prophet, Malachi, I would prefer you just close the doors. Stop bringing offerings. Stop coming to worship me with vain worship, with worship that is not from your hearts. Jesus even referred to those who, he says, you worship me with your lips. You mouth things. You say things. You mouth songs. You mouth singing things, but your hearts are far from me. It's worship that is unacceptable to God. Could that be true of any of us? That our worship is not acceptable to God because of biblical ignorance or because of our hearts are not with him, we've left our first love and it's vain or because we're robbing him or giving him leftovers, giving him secondary things and lesser things when he wants our very best. In our culture, it is not popular to say this, but it still needs to be said and it needs to be clear by the church if any person is worshiping anyone or anything apart from God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's false worship. And it's worship that is not acceptable to him. And I also want to point out that today's church, I believe, is being more and more, more corrupted, permeated with man-centered theology. Man-centered theology. You say, well, what is man-centered theology that is permeating churches and corrupting churches? Well, it's theology that is sick. And it produces sick Christianity where the focus of the Christian, their eye, their focus is on themselves instead of God. Where the focus is on us instead of him. Watch religious television. And you'll see it and you'll hear it where everything begins with us and our needs versus beginning with God and his glory. It's the idea, it's the teaching that God is like a cosmic genie and if you rub him a little bit, he will give you all of your earthly desires. And if you rub him just right, he'll make you feel good. And that worship is designed to make us feel good and help us to, to be better which it might or it might not. <laughs> However, the reason we worship God is not to make ourselves feel better, is it? Do you come to church and gather for corporate worship? Do you think I'm going to come to church so I can feel better? It may do that or it may not do that. But the reason we gather for corporate worship is not to, to feel better. It's because God is worthy of our praise because God is worthy of our worship and it's more driven by duty 
than feelings and emotions. Duty. I don't worship the Lord because I feel like it. I might feel like it tomorrow or I might not feel like it. I might feel like praying tomorrow. I may not feel like praying. I might feel like reading the scriptures. I may not feel like it, but we don't, we don't have a relationship with God based on our feelings. Do we? Do you think the church today is driven by emotion and feeling? And emotions and feelings are what dictate what we do and what we don't do. If I feel like it, I'll do it. If I don't feel like it, I won't. If I feel a little tired, I'll stay home today. If I, if I don't, I'll, I'll go. Feelings, emotions, is, is that what drives us? I think sadly it does in many cases. I don't worship God because I feel like it. Brother, you and I worship because we know who he is and we're compelled by duty, by demand to worship for him. He's, he's worthy of all glory and all praise and all, uh, all honor. There's too much Christianity and worship based on feelings. And so I'll go to church if I feel like it. I may even go to Sunday school if I feel like it. Or I may stay home if I feel like it or... Feelings and emotions. However, in verse 23, Jesus says, in addition to all these ideas about false worship, he says in verse 23, there's true worship. And it's the kind of worship that God the Father is seeking. Verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so in the time remaining, I want to examine true worship, spirit-filled worship, and I want to begin with a right understanding of corporate worship. You want to know what makes strong corporate collective worship is strong individual worship. You and your individual worship and how you worship Monday through Saturday is what determines the power and the strength and the vitality and the life of corporate worship. So let's begin with a right understanding of corporate worship. Most of us, when we think about worship, our minds go to Sunday mornings and, and we think about gathering for a worship service. And so what do we do? We find a parking spot, usually look for the one that's most convenient for us, hint. And uh, we find a parking spot and we come inside and we find our seat, Not, no longer than I've been here, I already kind of know where people sit. By the way, you know, I would encourage you to mix it up a little bit so that you get to meet some other people, right? You think there might be a whole other church over here than that's over there. But we come inside, we find our seat, find our area, and we wait for things to get started. And, you know, we'll look around and see who's here and how many are here. And then we'll uh, look around, see what's up there and what's back there. And we're just kind of mindlessly wandering with our thoughts and just kind of waiting for things to get started and thinking about all kinds of stuff, maybe where we're going to get to eat and how long the sermon is going to be and, and, uh, and what we're going to do later today. And that's, you know, that's kind of way we come in. And, and then most of us consider that Don and I are the worship leaders. And we're the worship leaders and the musicians and the choir and the vocalists, they're the performers. And who's the audience? All of you. 
Don and I are the worship leaders, the musicians, the vocalists, the choir, they're the performers, and you are the audience. And if Don and I lead music well and preach well, and if we're dressed appropriately, and if Don's beard is not too long, and if I don't preach too long, and I'm kind of funny and use some good illustrations, and if the musicians and vocalists perform well and they're on pitch and they're on time and the drums are not too loud and then you the audience will leave feeling satisfied that it was a good worship service how's that sound to you and if the performance was good enough you might even come back again next Sunday Some of us even think we want the performance to be really good so we can attract more worshipers. That's what most of us think. That's our experience. And some preachers and even worship leaders are responsible for contributing to that ongoing kind of shallow mindset. For example, if I preach a good sermon, in my estimation, then it was a good service. Regardless of what else, anything else happened, or if Don and the choir and musicians played and sang well, then they might conclude it was a great worship service. However, a biblical approach to corporate worship clashes. It clashes with that kind of thinking, with that kind of approach. The Bible prescribes an approach for corporate worship. And let me tell you and share with you a better approach. Yes, certainly Don and I are worship leaders. And he he and I need to be very prayerful and very prepared, seeking the Holy Spirit as we get ready for Sundays, which means making sure that the music content and the flow and the preaching more than anything else is biblical, that it's gospel-centered, And listen, there's a lot of crazy stuff being sung and preached in the churches today that are not gospel-centered. It's not biblical. And songs about fizz and yellow things. And I I literally heard something like that. Some crazy stuff is being sung today. Some crazy things are being preached today. And so it needs to be biblical. It needs to be gospel-centered. And preaching and music needs to be directed upward. Most of the preaching and most of the singing needs to be focused on God, not us. On Him. Drawing our attention to Him and His glory and His attributes and His presence and His name. Not on us. Biblically. Gospel-centered, focused on him, directing us upward. And I want to say to you, the audience, as we gather on Sunday mornings to worship, is not you. You say, well, who is it? It's not you. I'm not preaching to please you. Don is not picking out music to please you. You want to be contextually sensitive. But the audience is God. God's the audience. He's the one that we're seeking to please. And instead of the congregation being the audience, you are the performers. You're the performers. Don and I and the musicians, vocalists, instruments, we're just the facilitators. 
to help come alongside, to help lead you to perform, to worship God. Which means each Sunday that you gather here for worship, you're the performer. It's not a show. It's not to entertain. We have an audience of one, and he's watching, and he's present. Therefore, God is the one who determines if the worship was good. It's God. And the determining factor for the worship being good is you. Think about that. When you go out of church this morning, you think, how, and you ask your spouse or your son or daughter, somebody says, well, what did you think about the worship today? Did you think it was good? Well, we have those kind of conversations. And, but the real issue is, God, how was my worship today? Was it good? Was it pleasing to you? How did I perform today, God? Not, not that it's a show. Was it my very best? Did I give him my best today? When we started singing, was I just mouthing words? No concentration about what I was saying to the Lord? Really no concentration that he was listening and watching? Did I pray today or fall asleep during prayer time? When I give, do I give because I'm just overwhelmed at God's grace that he's even put me in a position to have anything to give at all when there's more people today in India who are starving to death than there are in the United States who have nothing. Is my, is my worship, is my giving, is it an expression of my gratitude to God and my thanksgiving or is it cheap and paltry? And somehow we think it would be okay that God doesn't mind, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't deserve my very best. And during the message, do I receive the word with enthusiasm and eagerness and concentration? Or is my mind on all kinds of other things? Is your worship acceptable to God? Are you offering him your very best? We... We've got to get past this again, this entertain me mindset in worship and move away from being a spectator, a spectator with a focus on myself to focus on God and on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and on his word and the presence and the leadership of the Holy Spirit and on giving him glory. So what can you do? What can you do to prepare for corporate worship? Well, I would say you can begin by preparing all week by walking with Jesus. Are you walking with him on Monday, talking to him, fellowshipping with him all throughout the week? You can prepare for corporate worship by walking with Jesus throughout the week. And, and I would especially say to you on Saturday nights to prepare, to prepare. I remember having this conversation with this young guy and every Sunday morning, He's a good guy, young, young, kind of a, kind of a, he's young, kind of a kid, wasn't really a, a man yet, but every Sunday he would fall asleep. And I loved this, loved him, known him all his life. And, and uh, 
I got into, and it was obvious. I mean, it had to go back, the mouth would fly. You should see some of the things I see while I'm preaching on Sunday morning. And I had a conversation to him, and uh, he knew that I knew he was sleeping during worship, and, uh, and he said, well, I can't help it. I said, why can't you help it? He said, well, I, you know, I'm just tired. I said, well, why are you tired? Well, me and my buddies on Saturday night say stay up till wee hours in the morning playing video games. And he wonders why he can't stay awake. Why, why he can't focus. Why he can't concentrate during worship. Because Saturday night is not being used to prepare for Sunday morning. To get some sleep. Maybe to actually pray on Saturday night for Sunday morning. Uh, Buddy, if there's anybody that needs to prepare for Sunday mornings on Saturday night, it's families. Um, many night, for years, four little kids. Uh, it takes some preparation. <laughs> and if you wait till Sunday morning, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you wait till Sunday morning, it can be pretty chaotic, especially if the, if the husband, the dad's kind of checked out and just leaves it all to her. And then I know what those car rides are like to church on Sunday morning, right? And so we would do ourselves well and would please and honor the Lord a little better if we'd prepare on Sunday night or Saturday night and get ready for Sunday morning. And then Sunday morning is to get up early, to get up early to prepare for corporate worship, to enter this place focused, man, to enter this place determined, I'm going to worship God today. I'm going to concentrate, I'm going to focus, I'm going to give him my very best in all that we do to, to really be focused, to bring our Bibles and to sing and to pray and to concentrate on the Word and to respond in faith, to be intentional worshipers instead of just going through the motions, which is what the prophet Malachi, speaking on God's behalf, was referring to. They were just going through the motions, and God says, oh, if you just close the doors and shut it down. Just shut it down. Let me wind down by making three points about worship. First, worship must be biblical. The Father is seeking worshipers, Jesus said, who worship him how? He said, according to truth. That means from the scriptures. The Bible is what drives. The Bible is what dictates worship. It's clear from the text that Jesus references in this verses 21 and 23, he talks about his hour or time. The hour is coming. The time is coming. And there's that same theme runs through John's gospel. You first find it in John chapter 2 where uh, Jesus is at that wedding in Cain of Galilee and he turns the water into wine. And he says to his mother, woman, do you not understand my hour is not yet come? My time is not yet come? And so this, this divine timetable for Jesus' life runs through the Gospels. And if you go over into John chapter 17, 1, finally his hour comes and he prays. The Bible says he lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, this is the hour. You're, the time has come for you to glorify your son. It's a reference to the cross. For him to be raised up on a cross and to be glorified. Jesus is saying to this woman that true worship is related to who he is and about what he's going to do on the cross. 
He's about to make a way available for all persons to have a saving relationship with God, for all persons to become worshipers. The veil of the temple is about to be torn, opening access to God for all people. And so the application to become a worshiper must be done through repentance of our sins and faith in the Lord Jesus. And the Bible then prescribes how we worship. And it must be done according to the truth. His word is truth. He also prayed in John 17, Father, sanctify them, set them apart in truth, for your word is truth. Therefore, our minds are to be engaged in worship, learning to think like Jesus, having his perspective, especially as we worship, and the Bible is to be central. It's to permeate everything we do in worship. Every lyric, every song, everything that's preached. And by the way, preaching is still primary in worship. I'm not in favor of having worship services where there's not preaching. It's not because I have a need to preach or because I want to make much of myself or I have to preach. It's because the Bible is what prescribes everything. And preaching is primary, and it needs to have a primary place in all worship services. Second, worship is to be from the heart. Jesus said the Father is not only seeking worshipers who worship in truth, but also worship him in spirit. And that word spirit is not... Referring to the Holy Spirit is a smaller case. It means sincerely from the heart. Do you worship him from the heart? Emotions, feelings are involved. Listen, Minnie and I have been married 39 years, and we've been through a lot together. And our love for each other has grown and matured and deepened. It's different than when we got married 39 years ago. It's different. But I will tell you this, there's, there's still some emotion there. There's still some feelings there. I still like to hold her hand. Our relationship is not built on feelings and emotions, but it would be pretty sad to me after 39 years if there still wasn't some passion, some emotions, some feelings between us that were strong. Worship is driven by the scripture. Worship is driven by truth, but it does involve feelings, the heart, the emotions. And I pray that we are stirred, that we are moved to worship him with our hearts. I wonder, is that true for you? Does, does worship just flow out of your heart? Is it sincere? Is it, are you passionate about worshiping God? Do you have a passion to worship, a desire to worship the Lord, to sing to him, to serve him, to honor him, to exalt him? Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and after him. Is, is that true of you? Is there a, are you worshiping God, driven by the scriptures and passionate to worship him from sincerity and heart? And finally, worship that is in spirit and truth will alter and change our wills. It'll change the way you live. It'll change your behavior. It'll change your attitudes when you worship. Can you say that Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is more and more the norm for you? Where he prayed, Father, not my will be done, but what? Your will be done. So you see, worship that is in spirit and truth affects the will. Is that true of your life? 
You find that there's a growing sense of surrender that you feel towards God, a growing sense of submission where you want to give your entire life and all that you are, all that you, it's all God's, all yielded, all surrendered to him. You say, well, that sounds pretty radical. It is pretty radical. And which Paul says in Romans 12 is reasonable. To present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, he said, which is just your reasonable act of worship. And so if anybody ought to be radical, it ought to be the church. And it ought to be over Jesus and worshiping him and honoring him. Hillcrest, let's be a worshiping church. Because he's worthy. He's worthy. I, I love, of all the songs that Don and the music team, that song, He is Worthy. I love that song. It moves me every time. Let's be a worshiping church. He's worthy. And let's worship according to the word. And let's worship him with all of our hearts. How are you doing? I think we probably all have, have some things we need to grow in, some areas we need to grow in. Amen? Let me pray with you.